Good morning. Happy Sunday. We know NFL season is starting today. Well, start on Thursday. Yes, yes, yes. Y'all better love Jesus just like that, too. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, just do me a favor. I have one favor to ask. Um, don't even joke about it. Just it, don't say anything about the 49ers. I'm recording the game. I don't want to know nothing about it. I'm actually going to spend some time with people and watch it. So please don't tell me anything about it. Um, so after service, just, uh, just don't let me know. Don't even joke about it. No, just kidding. Anyways, big, I'm a big football fan. Uh, so I'm excited for it to be back. But of course, I'm excited to be here uh, at the Crown Plaza, uh, the house of God, wherever God's people are. And we are, going, we are going to be 24 months old, so not three years old. We're going to be two years old. Uh, and so I don't know how to, you know, since I've had a baby, we're trying to figure out all these numbers or whatnot. But we are going to celebrate our second birthday in a couple of weeks here. And we are just so excited about what God is doing. Now, if you haven't noticed, because I have, it's been about four weeks since I've actually stood up here and had a chance to preach to the church. And uh, I have missed it, and it just feels good to be back. Thank you. Thank you. In my mind, I imagine like a roar in the crowd like, we love you, Pastor. We miss you. I think our church grew at when I didn't speak, um, which, is a, which I don't know if that's like a good thing or a bad thing or somewhere in between. Uh, but yeah, it's been four weeks and it feels good to be back. And um, I just want to say a few things. First of all, I am grateful. I'm grateful for a church that understands the power of service and Sabbath. Let me explain what I mean by that. And I want to be, and I'm, this is in all honesty. Um, thank you. Thank you for not making me feel like less of a pastor for taking some time away from not preaching. Like on behalf of my family and my mental health, Thank you. Thank you for being so kingdom-minded that you allowed other people to come and step on this pulpit and preach to you, which in turn allowed me to rest. Thank you. Thank you. No, seriously. And here's what I want to assure you, that even though I took a rest from preaching, I never take a rest from seeking. And this entire month of August has been a time for me just to pray. And I've been asking the Lord this question, what's next for Inspired Church? You see, I believe that living things are growing things. And growing things always change. My son, every month, I feel like every day, I feel like something new. I just found out every week he's like learning a new word. So I need to be careful, right? But... My son is moving, my son is growing, and my son is changing, and that's a sign of life. And I think the church needs to move, needs to grow, and continue to change because it's a sign of life. So I've really been asking the Lord, what's next for Inspired Church? And the result, my poor wife, she's not in here today, she's actually serving this morning, but the result has been a spare bedroom full of poster paper and vision boards. If you're anything like me, you need to see it. And so I've just, as I've been praying and seeking the Lord, I've just been writing down. And so like my walls in my spare bedroom is just covered with things. I believe the Lord is kind of saying about where he's taking Inspire Next. And here's what I really believe. I believe Inspire Church is in a season of recreation. We're a season of reimagining. And so if you're new, 
if you're just kind of fresh to Inspire Church for the last couple of months, or maybe you've been here for a little bit, but you've been kind of disconnected, I want to tell you that this is a, a great time to take that step and get in, get inside and get involved. And like I said, if you're new here, this is the perfect time, or maybe you've been just a little disconnected, maybe you've been casually observing. I just, look, you don't have to. We're not a cult, <laughs> right? But this is a great time to get back into or to be a part of what God is doing next at this church. And I'm like a kid on Christmas Eve. You know, you can't go to sleep. You're excited to open up the gifts on Christmas because I believe through the leadership here and through prayer, there's, there's a fresh mission and vision that's brewing. And I want to release it, but I can't just yet. And so I want you to be excited and know that it is coming soon. But big things are, are coming our way, and I'm just so excited that the Lord has been able to do that. And I've been able to take some time in August really just to seek his face for that. And that's probably why I'm so excited about starting this sermon series on the book of Nehemiah. In fact, it's been something that I've been anticipating for a couple of months now. So I, I hope that you will consider joining us for this entire sermon series. Um, I originally thought it would be about six weeks, but I'm just going to take my time in this baby. And so we might even go into Christmas with Nehemiah. Uh, I don't think we can go that far, but we are going to just enjoy this book together. It has been blessing me. I hope that it will bless you. And so with that being said, uh, let's pray and then let's jump um, into this together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this church family. Thank you for rest. And thank you for service. And thank you that you have given us a space where we can do both together. I ask that you would just speak through me. I pray that your words would flow through me. And I pray that you would get the glory, not my speech, uh, not the new things that come out of the scripture that people have never heard before. I pray that I would preach a message that would not make people in awe of me, but in awe of you. And so may this church always remember that. And so, Father, I just pray for this sermon series. Uh, I pray that the word would not come back void, but it would accomplish everything it's been meant to accomplish. And we ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 <clears throat> So here's what I want to do. I kind of want to give you a framework for the book of Nehemiah. And literally today, we're probably just going to talk about chapter one and really get through the first four verses. Like I said, I'm going to take my time with this one. And so, I, but before we get into the text, I want, to, I want to give you some historical background, just a small snapshot of what's going on so that as we jump into Nehemiah, we can kind of just get a better understanding of the big picture. So let me just say a couple of things. First of all, Nehemiah is kind of like a sequel to the book of Ezra. So Ezra will come first in your Bibles in the Old Testament, and then Nehemiah will come second. And so Nehemiah and Ezra, Nehemiah is like part two uh, to the Ezra's part one. In fact, some scholars even believe that Ezra and Nehemiah were originally written by one author as one book. And so they kind of fuse together and match one another. So I want to encourage you, as we go through this Nehemiah sermon series, I want to encourage you two things. Will you go and find a connect? 
Um, we'll, we'll sprinkle these connects after service. We'll leave them back up here on display. Take a little photo of it. Uh, just find a connect this week because at our connects, we will go deep into Nehemiah together. But also on your private time, I uh, just want to invite you maybe even to read Ezra um, alongside of it that may help you grow in your understanding um, of our sermon series. And so again, Nehemiah and Ezra were basically, some scholars believe, one book written by one author. Now, these books cover a time in history uh, when the Israelites were returning back from 70 plus years of exile. You see, during King David and during King Solomon, Israel had experienced glory. King David unified and and King David uh, expanded Israel's kingdom. And then Solomon, King David's son, came after him and became the wisest man. Their people flocked to Israel to see how Israel did things because Solomon was so wise. And one thing that Solomon did is he built the temple of God. And Israel and Jerusalem literally became the epicenter of worship where sacrifices were being lifted up on the altars, pleasing the Lord. And Jerusalem and the temple were to be the place where the nations would come and get to know the one true God. Over a period of time, something had happened. Other kings took over after Solomon, and we see just this cycle of destruction and sin and disobedience and idolatry and unfaithfulness to the Lord. And what had happened as a punishment, Israel went into captivity. Nations like Babylon raised up and came in and attacked Israel. And what had happened was they destroyed Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed. And hundreds of thousands of Israelites were removed from their homes and taken into exile into foreign places. And so Ezra and Nehemiah pick up after Israel has been in captivity for over 70 years. And now they're getting ready to return back to the land that God had promised them. Amen? And so in the book of Nehemiah and in the book of Ezra, you will find three returns. We're going to go to school for a second. So for those of you who don't like school, I'm sorry. Um, uh, For those of you who are in school and feel like you're overschooled, I'm sorry, but I love this part. So here's what we're going to do. There are three returns that are covered in Nehemiah and Ezra. So let me explain to you the first return. The first return was led by a man named Zerubbabel. Can you say that with me? Perfect. Zerubbabel. He took back with him over 42,000 Israelites. And what had happened was God had raised up a foreign king in a foreign nation by the name of Cyrus and put it on Cyrus's heart for the temple of God to be rebuilt. And so Zerubbabel, with about 42,000-plus people, went out of Babylon and into or back to Jerusalem with the intention to rebuild a temple that had been decimated. Now, check this out. With the temple rebuilt, the altars would be restored and sacrifices to God would commence. You can basically say that This this return led by Zerubbabel was a restoration of worship. This return was a worship-restoring movement. Now, about 80 years after Zerubbabel had returned and began to rebuild the temple, there was a second return. And this second return was led by a man named Ezra. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Ezra. Ezra was a teacher. 
Ezra was a scholar. Ezra was a scholar and a teacher of the Torah, which was the law of God given to the Israelites. And one of the things that Ezra had discovered was that the reason why the Jews were in exile in the first place was because they had become disobedient to God's law. And as a result of disobedience to God's law, God chastised or he punished them. He disciplined them by allowing foreign lands to conquer them and take them into exile. And so now that the Jews were returning back to their homeland, Ezra had a passion inside of him to teach the people the law of God. And Ezra had a desire. And Ezra said, never again. What do I mean by that? Never again. You remember during the time of 9-11, we would say, never again. This is never going to happen again. We experienced a national tragedy in which a foreign place came in and, and, and attacked us on our soil. And we said, never again. Well, for Ezra, he said, never again. Never again will we go back into exile. And so he made it his passion and his commitment to go back to Jerusalem and to begin to teach the word of God and the Torah so that the Israelites would never find themselves in exile again. Does that make sense? And so Zerubbabel's movement was a worship-restoring movement. Ezra's movement restored covenant faithfulness back to God. Now, I want you to get this here. This is important. God never left Israel. Israel left God. Even when they were in captivity, God was with them. And so this was a movement that restored covenant faithfulness. And finally, number three um, was the last return, and this return was led by a man named Nehemiah. Now, let me tell you just a little bit about that, and obviously the next several weeks we're going to get deeper into this. But Nehemiah's number one concern was with rebuilding Jerusalem's walls, its broken walls, and its burning gates. Zerubbabel, that movement restored worship. Ezra, that movement restored covenant faithfulness. Nehemiah, that movement literally was a construction project. In fact, it was a reconstruction project. Now, before we jump into the text, there are some lessons, some humble lessons that emerge from this brief history. And I just want to take a moment to not let these lessons pass by because I think they're crucial for you and I. Are you ready? Here's the first lesson. We must, and this is an individual lesson, an individual member of the body of Christ, you and I must be careful never to fall into the temptation of assuming that what Zerubbabel and Ezra accomplished was somehow more spiritually significant than what Nehemiah did. I want you to never forget this. When God calls you to a task, when he places a burden deep inside of your heart, it may be to preach. It may be to plant a church. It may be to volunteer in kids' ministry. Or it just might be offering free oil changes to single moms. I want you to remember, every God-given task, every God-given call, every God-given burden is equally as spiritually significant to the body of Christ and to the ministry and mission of God. 
Now, this may mess your theology up a little bit, but I kind of like messing you up sometimes. If we're not taking care of our single moms, then God doesn't care about our preaching. If we are not caring for the widows and orphans, then your fasting means nothing before the Lord. You know what it is? It's a hollow, empty religion that means nothing to him. And we have all of these conversation about the social justice movement and where does the church line up. I'm going to tell you something. It's not one or the other. It's both end. If the gospel has affected you, you have moved in justice. Your heart breaks for those who are broken. You know, the body of Christ needs the hands and the feet just as much as the mouth and the eyes. I heard a pastor, J.D. Greer, he said this. It's easy to look at the eye and think it to be more important than the foot. The eye seems to be more amazing in what it accomplishes. It's more, if you take a look at the anatomy of the eye, you'll see the power and the profound beauty of what the eye accomplishes. And the eye actually is kind of self-cleaning. The foot on the other end, you need to clean that bad boy. It don't smell too good sometimes. But let me tell you something. The eye will see the same thing over and over again if the feet aren't taking it to the next place. We need some men and women in this church that aren't going to preach all the time but are going to use their hands and build some things. Otherwise, our religion is hollow. Amen? Second lesson. The first one was a lesson to the body as an individual member. This is a lesson to the body as a church collectively. And here it is. As a church, you ready for this? We must be careful never to become what I call a narcissistic church. Let me explain to you what I think a narcissistic church is. No one church has a monopoly on all God wants to do in a particular city or a region. In fact, what God wants to do in the Bay Area, what he wants to do even in Union City is so incredibly beyond, beyond what you and I can think of or imagine that no one church could accomplish it alone. We would crush ourselves trying to just accomplish an inkling of what God has even for our neighborhoods. We insult God. And we insult his gospel when we assume that inspires contributions are greater in the kingdom than a faithful church down the street. Size doesn't matter. Faithfulness does. And I pray that we would always be a church, that we would be a humble church, and that we would never need to put another church down to make our church feel better. I pray that as you invite your friends, as you love on your friends, as you talk to your friends, it's not about inspired church. I pray you wouldn't fall in love with inspired. You would fall in love with Jesus and that you'd be grateful because inspired church, God may use it as a vehicle to reach you, but you would fall in love with Jesus. We have too many people more in love with their church than they're in love with Jesus. And what comes out is competition and comments and conversations that make it look like we're all on different teams. I'm tired of it. Tired of it. And if I ever hear a leader or a member of our church gassing us up while putting another church down, you'll have a problem with me.
I didn't tell you to put your seatbelts on, did I? (laughs) Open to Nehemiah chapter 1. It gets better, I promise. (laughs) Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to read four verses this morning. Nehemiah chapter 1, we'll obviously have it up here for you on the screen. But if you brought your Bibles, use them. If you brought your little apps, use them. And we'll do this together, amen? Nehemiah chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. Here's how scripture reads. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. Now, I want to make some quick observations because there's some language in these first two verses that you and I are not familiar with. Number one, what is Chislev? Well, Chislev was in the winter, and the assumption is is that it was about the month of November or December when Nehemiah was writing this. Now, Nehemiah also reports that it was around the 20th year. What is he referring to? The 20th year refers to the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes of Persia. The next thing is you might have saw the word Susa and Citadel. Now, Susa was the capital city of Persia, and the citadel was literally the king's winter palace. Now, what we'll find out is that Nehemiah was the cupbearer of the king. Which means everywhere the king went, Nehemiah went. And anytime the king wanted a little bit of wine, you know what Nehemiah did? He tasted it first. And he gave it to the king. Now, this would happen for a couple of reasons. Number one is it would make sure the king wasn't poisoned. But number two is you were wrapped in luxury. Now, Nehemiah was in a high place. Nehemiah was not roughing it (laughs) by any stretch of the imagination. Now, let's continue. This is Nehemiah speaking in verses 3 and 4. It reads like this. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I want to stop right there. From the beginning, two qualities stick out to me about Nehemiah. First, Nehemiah was a man who carried a burden from the Lord. And second, Nehemiah carried that God-given burden with God-given wisdom. And so for the next two Sundays, I'm going to talk about today, Nehemiah carrying a God-given burden. And next week, I'll talk about carrying that God-given burden in God-given wisdom. Now, Nehemiah was a man with a burden from God. Oftentimes, and I I really want you to get this because this is the crux of what I want to speak to you today. We're going to take Nehemiah and from his book, we're going to learn about Christ. We're going to learn about the gospel and we're going to be challenged to live as disciples. 
oftentimes you and I can discover what it is that God is calling us to by pay attention, by paying attention to the place where our dreams and our tears intersect. Here's the question. What excites you while at the same time breaks your heart? What is it that when you look at it, you see it for what it could be, but not for what it actually is? Now, I want you to watch this. What it could be excites you, but what it actually is breaks your heart. What it could be excites you, but what it actually is in its current state breaks your heart. I just want to share a personal story. I remember when I officially became youth pastor at my previous church, I, I was so excited to take over this youth ministry. And if you've ever took over a ministry or ever got a new job or a new position and somebody gave you ownership of it, you get excited. You go into what I like to call this dream stage, right? This, it's, fun. it's like you've seen other people do things and that's been great, but now it's yours and you can't wait. And so you start visioning and planning and creating and saying, we're going to do this and we're going to change this. And you just begin to bubble up with excitement and vision. Are you with me? Has anybody ever felt that way? I couldn't wait to take that ministry from where it was to where I knew that it could be. This was going to be some next level stuff, y'all. And I remember one Sunday night, uh, I was at our church service in the evening, and I went up to the front, and I was just praying. And all of a sudden, while I was praying, I felt several hands touching my back and touching my shoulders. You know, when someone comes up to pray for you, you, you want to make sure who's praying for you, right? You're like, you know, you kind of open your eye. You're kind of just peeking a little bit. You want to see who's touching you. And to my surprise, curious to see who had come up behind me to pray, I saw five or six different youth from the ministry I was getting ready to take over were praying for me. And I'll never forget what happened next. All of a sudden, like a ton of bricks, I became overwhelmed with emotion, and I fell to the ground. And this is no exaggeration. For about five minutes, I began to cry out loud like a baby, and it was uncontrollable. And I remember every time I wanted to stop, I was thinking, what the heck is going on? Every time I wanted to get a little self-control of myself while I'm sobbing and snot is coming out. Thank God they didn't take pictures back then. Now you're on Facebook, right? We had a great service today. You know, sloppy eyes. You're like, really? By the way, just by showing up on Sundays, you've already committed. We could put your picture anywhere. So I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But I remember falling to the ground like a sack of bricks and kind of almost in a fetal position. I don't know if my mom and dad remember this, but some people might have thought, is he okay? Is there something in there that needs to get out? And every time I wanted to get control of myself and I wanted to suck it up and say, okay, that's enough. You know what the Lord began to do? He began to remind, I began to feel their brokenness. I begin to feel their loneliness. I begin to feel their fatherlessness. I begin to feel the effects of poverty. And it would just cause me to continue to sob deeply. It only made the sobbing worse. And I believe in that moment, God was truly allowing me to feel their pain. But here's what I want you to get. 
after being overwhelmed with tears, I got up and I felt like God told me, you have the vision, but now you have the burden. That was the night that my passion intersected with my tears. And I realized that this love I had for people and this love I had to minister was supernatural. It was beyond me. Now, look at how the scriptures defined the current condition of Jerusalem. The scriptures say the walls were broken and the gates were burning. But the scriptures doesn't stop there because God's not concerned about walls and gates. The scripture continues to say the people were buried in trouble and shame. Now, notice Nehemiah's burden as we look at verse 4 one more more time. As soon as... As I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before God, before the God of heaven. What we're witnessing right here in Scripture is Nehemiah's burden. It's the heart of God being transferred into the heart of a man. And what a heavy yet beautiful burden to carry. And I want to clarify something to you really quickly. Not all burdens look the same. Not all people carry the heart of God for the same things. But all people should carry God's heart about something. So don't feel guilty if you're not mourning about the same thing the person next to you is mourning. Don't overwhelm yourself because there are so many different things that you feel like you want to solve. And some of us have the tendency to feel bad. Well, I, I, I know there's, there's sex trafficking and God's heart is for that. And then there's the orphans and the widows and God's heart for that and the poor and, and, and racial injustice. And, and sometimes we can get, feel guilty because, because there's so many things to accomplish. If you try to do it all, you'll kill yourself. What I want you to do is not do it all, but find out what God has uniquely burdened you for. Are you with me? It's not all about all of us carrying necessarily the same burden it's simply about all of us carrying a burden now this may sound strange but i'm praying that inspired church would be full of leaders and full of members who are so sensitive to the heart of god that it moves them to tears here's my challenge if god's mission isn't moving you to tears If his ministry isn't causing you to fast and weep, maybe there's something in your heart that you need to examine. I'm going to be practical for a moment. If you find yourself moving further away from God's mission, if you find yourself moving further away from his ministry, And maybe that one of two things are affecting you. And maybe both and maybe neither. But it may be that one of two things might be affecting you. The first one is it could be sin. I just got to be honest with you today. It could be sin. Nothing hardens the heart faster than some kind of lingering disobedience to God in your life. 
Nothing does, listen, nothing does a better job at disqualifying you from making kingdom impact than lingering sin. But guess what? I got good news. The gospel is good news. The gospel reminds us that we are all sinners and that you and I were never qualified in the first place. There was never anything you could do to make yourself any better. There was never anything that you could do on your own merits to earn God's call or burden over your life. The gospel says, yes, you're right. You are a sinner. And yes, you're right. You are not qualified. But the gospel is good news because it says Jesus qualifies you with his qualification for your life. The moment you said yes to Jesus... You received his qualification, and his qualification is more than enough. Stop allowing your sin to get in the way. Repent and move forward in the name of Jesus. Secondly, could be sin, or it could be hurt. Past pains hold us back. Past let downs have a way of keeping the gifts God has given us to bless the world, to bless his people, to bless his church. Past pains, past letdowns have a way of rendering our gifts useless by keeping it dormant in fear or anger. This could be sin too. Here's the real question. Who hurt you? Where have you been let down? And guess what? I got good news for you too. The gospel tells us, are you ready? In Christ, God has completely accepted you. You're accepted. You're accepted. And nothing I've ever done nor anything that I'll ever do in the future needs to depend upon the affirmation of man. Nothing I've ever done in my past, nothing I've ever done in my future depends upon a man or a woman to tell me I did good or depends on a man or woman whether they used me or whether they didn't. Everything that I've ever done has been for the honor and glory of God and everything that I will do is for the honor and glory of God. And this may sting a little, but stinging will also bring healing. We may need to even repent of placing so much power into someone else's opinion because it stopped us from pleasing God. We may need to repent. You may, we may need to say, you know what? I was hurt, but I need to forgive. You know what? I have some struggles, and it happens. Trust me. It happens. You get hurt. You get bruised in ministry. You will. You will. Just serve on a team, and you'll figure that out week one. I'll hurt you. I'll walk by you. I won't even say hi. I won't say thank you. You'll walk away hurt. It'll happen. People have already, you've been here a couple of weeks. You're going to get hurt. How, you're like, how do you know this? Well, because we're full of people. And you know what? You hurt people too. So let's just let the gospel preach to all of us together in this place. In our brokenness, in our dysfunction, let's let the gospel preach to us in this place. Who? Did I give the power to, to stop me from moving in what is supposed to be pleasing to God? Yeah. Who, who took it? You know what's crazy about the gospel? 
the beautiful gospel turns my work into an act of worship. I don't need any recognition. I mean, every once in a while, I'm a human, right? I like a little high five every once in a while. Good job, Phil, right? It's tough. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying, hey, get beat up and just too bad. (laughs) But what I'm saying is, is when the gospel is at the center, when Christ is in, in his throne, on his throne in my heart, and I haven't put someone else there, the hurt will sting, but it won't destroy. Because I was never doing this for that person in the first place. Here's the question I think you and I need to be constantly asking ourselves. What part of the gospel am I not believing in this part of my life? What part of the gospel am I not believing in this part of my life? I think my dad is going to be a little surprised by this. But there's an old picture I found. Definitely not. Yeah, it's, don't worry. I, I would have got his consent if it was going to embarrass him. But there's an old picture that I found um, of a 1931 Ford Model A. Any car fans in here? There it is. Now, if you look at that picture, it's got no tires. <laughs> it's completely rusted out. I'm assuming there's no engine. I mean, I'm not much of a car guy. I'm assuming it's got no engine, so it doesn't run. And it looks like it's buried in the backyard of some hoarder's house. (laughs) Keep that picture there for a moment. Can I tell you something? For 25 years of my life, possibly 30, I could never understand why my dad kept an old, beat-up car like this one in the picture, what I thought was rotting in our garage. Every day, I'd walk past it. Every day, I would walk past it in the garage. And I never seen it for anything more than an old, rusty, (laughs) mater-looking car that just took too much space in the garage. However, I did find some value in it. I would put my cleats in the back after a game. I'd put my basketball and my bat bag in the back. And so it did have some practical Uh, (laughs) help for me but overall it didn't run it had missing parts and really it was just a waste of space but to my father the car that I called junk he calls treasure he calls treasure and you want to know why because when my dad looked at that Model A he didn't see this picture but he saw this picture that's a picture of the model a in our garage right now in fact we just took that yesterday now you could say that the difference between my father and i was that my father had something i lacked he had vision This is the power of vision. I want you to see these two cars side by side. This is the power of vision. Vision has the ability to see something the way that it was originally intended to be. 
not the way that it currently is. Now, the opening lines of Nehemiah teach us something beautiful about God's vision for you and I. His gospel vision for you and I. In fact, there are two things, and then I'm going to pray. Number one, I want you to see this. First thing the gospel teaches you and I, that in Christ, the Father no longer sees the rusted, broken down version of ourselves. Sin has broken down and burned every part of me. Humanity is beyond recognition. We are dead. We are not who we were intended to be. Yet, the moment you and I placed our faith in Jesus, the Father ceased to see us in our sin the way that we are, and they began to see a more perfect and better vision, Jesus Christ. Did you know Christ has come to restore humanity back to our original intention. In fact, some would consider Jesus Christ to be the most authentic man that's ever walked the earth. He in us is literally a restoration project. And if you've walked away from that, if you've lost sight of that, if you've made it about anything more than that, You need to preach yourself the gospel. The gospel isn't just something that gets you in. The gospel is something that keeps you for the rest of your life. Because as long as I'm living, my sin is going to ever be present. As long as I'm alive, I'm going to feel insecure. As long as I'm around, I'm going to put someone on a pedestal. And when I I disappoint them, I'm going to feel deep failure. So I am always going to need to preach the gospel over my life. That I am not enough. That I am a sinner. But in Christ, the Father doesn't see my failures. He sees Christ's perfection. Christ's perfection. Christ's perfection. Now, here's what happened as a result of that. Watch. This is the second thing. Those of us who believe this amazing gospel are not only being rebuilt and restored, but we're being empowered to partner with God in this epic restoration project that involves all of humanity, all of the earth. Inspire Church, we're called to receive this gospel for ourselves. We're called to believe this gospel for ourselves. We're called to rest in the reality that Jesus is making us new. But we're also called to carry the burden of that restoration to the Bay Area and to the nations. What an honor it is to be a part of a restoration project where we get renewed and we get to participate in the renewal process of others. Can I just say that again? What an honor it is to be a part of a restoration process where we get renewed and we get to be a part of the renewal process of humanity with Jesus Christ. 